preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Amen. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and open up to First uh, Peter. We're back in First uh, Peter uh, this afternoon in chapter 3. Uh, and if you've been with us uh, for our study of First uh, Peter, you'll remember that First uh, Peter is a book uh, that's written uh, to a group of suffering churches across a broad geographical area. Uh, the geographical area is listed in uh, verse 1 of uh, uh, chapter 1 in First Peter. Uh, speaks about uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. And uh, those are all areas known as Asia Minor, and uh, which would be modern-day Turkey. And they all shared the similar experience of suffering. Uh, not every church suffered as badly as every other church, uh, but they were all suffering to one degree or another because of their Christian identity. Uh, Not every church suffered as bad, but every church suffered the same kinds of suffering. Uh, The new religion of Christianity was uh, considered a strange sect, uh, superstition, and Christians were being judged by what people heard about them rather than what people knew about them. And nothing has really changed right up until today uh, because it's still happening. Uh, We're still misunderstood and a maligned group of of people, Uh, but the same thing was happening in the first century. Christians were being maligned and attacked, and it was clear that believers were facing false accusations. Uh, Peter in chapter 2 and verse 12 uh, lets us know that they were being slandered as evildoers, and in chapter 3 and verse 16, it says that their good behavior in Christ was being slandered and reviled. Now, we know that about a thousand miles away from Asia Minor and the city of Rome, uh, Nero was blaming the Christians for the burning of Rome in AD 64, and the easy target and scapegoat became the Christians. Christians are the, the reason. He, and what Peter does is he doesn't instruct the Christians, you know, hey, you know, just try to do all that you can to fit in. You know, I know the world is against you. I know you're being slandered. I know you're being attacked. You know, just try to tone down your testimony. You know, don't stick out so much. And uh, maybe all of us can just get along. You know, why can't we all just get along? But that's not what Peter instructs the Christians to do. He's not encouraging them to just blend into society and make sure that you don't stick out. You know, don't, don't be looked at as strange. That's not what Peter tells them to do. Peter's instruction for them is let's show them how strange we really are. <laughs> that's, that's Peter's instruction. In First uh, Peter chapter 2 In verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. That's who you are. You you don't belong. You're aliens, you're strangers. Abstain from fleshly lust. Don't fit in with the world. Don't don't give in to their fleshly lust. They wage war against the soul. 
In verse 12, but keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I know that you don't seem to fit in, but that's okay. Show them how strange you really are. And the exhortation for believers was not to look like the world, not to go unnoticed, but to be so committed to the truth and to good deeds that we would be noticed. What should be strange about the believer is that we abstain from fleshly lust, that we keep our behavior excellent, that we engage in good deeds. That's what should stick out about the believer. Later on in chapter 4, in 1 Peter 4 and verse 4, he says, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them to the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. You know, this group of people, they're not with us. They're not joining in in our celebrations. You know, the unbeliever shouldn't be able to look at the believer and say, you know, they do the same thing that we do. You know, I party on the weekends and I get a little tipsy and, uh, hey, that's what they do too. They do the same thing that I do. You know, I'm known for my foul and obscene speech and, and guess what? They can cut loose too. They, they do it too. My focus is on the outer man. I'm all focused on the outside. And you know what? Those Christians, they look like they're doing the same thing that I'm doing. They're just focused on the outside. You know, I'm known for my complaints and disdain for authority. And you know what the Christians do? They do the same thing. Hey, we can get along. They're just like me. And my home is centered on me and my wants and my desires and my wishes. That's how my home is situated. That's how my home is set up. And you know what those Christians, they're, they're, they're just like me. They're, they're just alike. We're supposed to be something different, something distinct about the Christian witness. And that distinction should be our, our virtuous lives. You know, people may say all kinds of things about you if they don't know you. They may hate you. They may hate your God. They may hate your Christianity, but they should be able to see something in your life that that's, I, I know I don't like it, but that's still good. Like what they're doing is still right. And there's something about how they live that doesn't match what I thought they would be like. It doesn't match the stereotype that I had in my mind. You know, I thought that uh, Christians were these hateful people, you know, that when you disagree with them that, you know, they're all out to get you. But, you know, that's not how that person treated me. You know, when they found out how I lived, they, they didn't just outright reject me. They, they still reached out in love towards me. That's, that's not what I was expecting. You know, I thought Christians were the, the enemies of society, you know, just trying to seek to, to burn the system down. But that's, that's not how this person came across. You know, this person was submissive and he wanted to, to do all that he could as long as it didn't violate his conscience. As long as it didn't violate the word of God, you know, this person was seeking to, to get along. And I, I thought, you know, Christians were, uh, you know, their, 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 their values and uh, the way that they, they lived were, were really so much different that, you know, it wouldn't allow them to be good workers, good citizens, that it wouldn't allow them to be good husbands and wives. But you know what? There's something commendable about the way that that Christian is functioning and operating. There, there should be something that the world can look at us and say there, there's something different there. There's something that's right there. There's something that's good there. And there's a responsibility that we have as Christians to, to government, to the workplace, within the home, and it's to do good works. And those good works, again, as I've said before, those good works are not defined by the world. Those good works are defined by God and his word. So that's how we know what's right. That's how we know what's good. We allow God to define those things for us. And as Christians pursue what is right and what is good, 
somehow the world starts to take note. So it doesn't mean that we're trying to win the approval of the world. We, we can't win the approval of the world, and we shouldn't try to live the approval of the world. And I guess somebody's competing with me trying to, trying to preach. <laughs> it's okay. So we shouldn't be trying to, trying to match the, uh, uh, the world's uh, approval, get the world to approve of us. You know, we're not trying to, trying to kind of win the world over. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22, it says, you will be hated by all because of my name. Jesus says, you're going to be hated. There, there are going to be people that just don't like you. And believers, I want to let you know, you're just going to have to get used to it. <laughs> you're going to have to get used to it. Don't, don't expect everybody to like you. Don't expect everybody to say, you know, hey, I'll pat you on the back, you know, attaboy, you're doing a great job. Don't expect that from the world. That's not, that's not who we are. We are aliens. We're, we're not part of this world. So the society that we live in, uh, we should let them know that we're not a threat to what's right, to what's good, but they should know that we're pursuing after what's right, what's good, for the benefit and blessing of the world. That's who we are. And this is a principle that we can apply in general, but the primary application that we're considering today is what does that look like in our families? How are we to pursue what's right and good within the home? How are we to seek the benefit and blessing of those that are part of our household? And sometimes that happens even when we don't, when it's not perceived to be a blessing, you know, we're still trying to be a blessing even when it's not perceived to be a blessing, right? But we, we want to do what's, what's best. And that begins, first of all, with the marriage relationship. That's the specific application in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Let's go ahead and uh, read verses 1 to 6 just for the sake of context. Our focus is going to be verse 7, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God also, uh, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear." You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Uh, Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, Lord, and uh, we thank you for your truth. And uh, Father, we pray that you would open up your word uh, to us, uh, that you would help us to understand it, uh, that you would help us to apply this word in our lives. Uh, Father, that your word would bring conviction uh, to our hearts where we need to be convicted. And uh, Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The kind of marriage that glorifies God, blesses the family, and shuts the mouths of unbelievers is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. And uh, the last time we were here together, we started looking at the husband's responsibility. And there are two main directives uh, that are found in verse 7, to live with your wife, and show honor to your wife. Those are the two main directives here, to live with your wife and to show honor to your wife. And uh, both of those are uh, what's called present active participles and refer to the continuous duty that's expected of the husband. 
And now both of these participles have an imperatival force, which means that it carries the force of a command. This is what you are to do. You ought to do these things. So what does it mean for a husband to live with his wife? We looked at this last time. This is just review. Husbands are to live in a knowledgeable way. What does that look like? Number one, it looks like cohabitation, that you live with your wife. could actually be translated, make a home with your wife. That's one way that we live in, in ways that are knowledgeable. Uh, we make a companionship in our marriage. It's a, a priority. The companionship of, of marriage is the priority of the husband. He understands that it's not good for the man to be alone, that he's not trying to get away every chance that he can get to, to be by himself. He's not avoiding conversation. He's not avoiding uh, uh, intimacy. He's not avoiding uh, communication with his, his wife but he's making whatever sacrifices need to be made in order for him to be together with his wife. It's uh, basically the same thing that uh, Paul talks about in the qualifications of being a one-woman man. I'm dedicated to my spouse. That's the idea here. I'm dedicated to my one spouse. I'm making a home with my spouse. It also looks like contemplation, living with knowledge, living with understanding. And that means in general that you understand what God has required of a husband Uh, But it's also saying that I understand my wife particularly. Just as the wife was to be submissive to her own husband, a husband is to understand his own wife. He should care for her, know her desires, her needs, her preferences, and to be able to serve his wife in that way. It also looks like consideration. And that word for uh, uh, understanding, consideration, uh, is also uh, one of the translations that's used here. It's considering who she is as a woman, uh, that she's a weaker vessel. Uh, So that means that we understand that there are things that we don't send our wives to do that we should do, right? You know, if there's a a bump in the middle of the night, you don't nudge your wife and say, hey, honey, can you check that out for me, please? You know, if you hear a scratching in the closet, you know, you don't jump on top of the chair and say, hey, honey, can you open the door and see what that is? That's not to be a man, (laughs) That's not to, to, to use uh, the strength that God has given you for the benefit and blessing of your wife. And every, everybody understands that. Everybody understands that. You know, if, if you're walking down the street and you're about to be mugged, you don't stand behind your wife, right? You take the hit. That's what leadership is. That's what it means to lay down your life for your bride, right? Everybody gets that. Everybody gets that. You know, but all of a sudden, you know, we act like uh, we don't understand these things anymore in the day that we live in. You know, so we're going to have uh, men and women competing together and acting as if, you know, hey, that's, that's okay. You know, they can get in the ring and, and duke it out. What in, what in the world are you thinking? What are you thinking? You know, so, so today, you know, we have the, uh, the Olympic Committee, the International Olympic Committee, you know, making this push for men and women to be teamed up together in an effort to increase gender equity. You know, what, what, you're, what you're increasing is slaughter. That's what you're increasing I mean, what, what are you thinking? It's obvious that men and women are different. I'm just stating what's clear. And we're to be considerate of those differences as men. Amen? We're never to take advantage of those differences. No, we're not to use our differences for our own selfish ends. We're to offer whatever strength that we have for the service of our spouse. That's what we do. So we're to be mindful of her needs aware of her physical limitations. We're to watch over her as a protector. We're to care for her as a provider. We're never to become a danger to her. And we looked at that last time. And if we have any kind of position of authority, 
you're giving a position of authority in order to serve. That's what our model, our perfect model, demonstrated for us, right? He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why we look back at Matthew chapter 20 last time. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're to follow the example of Christ in his authority. He was an example of service towards his disciples. John chapter 13, bending down to to stoop and wash the dirty feet of the disciples. Why why did he do that? As an example? Yeah, have you seen what I've I've done? And the the answer isn't just, oh, you wash my feet. (laughs) That's not just the the only answer there. It's it's that I, I stoop to serve you. If I, your master, am stooping to serve you, what are you to do for one another? You're to serve one another. That's, that's what leadership looks like. So we can't imitate Christ in his substitution, but we can imitate Christ in his sacrifice. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the kind of service that we're to have towards our wives. That was all included in the first section, to live with our wives in a knowledgeable way. Point number two, husbands are to live in an honorable way. Again, in verse 7, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And, here's the second part, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. First part, we're to assign our wives significance. Assign your wife significance. Uh, That word for honor, it's the Greek word time. It's a common word in the New Testament, which is used to indicate a precious value, something that is to be highly regarded. We've actually already seen this word for honor back in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and and verse 7, where it speaks about our faith. Listen to this uh, back in chapter 1 and and verse 7. Actually, I'll start at verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a value that God assigns to our faith, the faith that we place in him. And he says that faith is more precious than gold. It's more value of that faith than all the gold that you could amass in the world. And here we, just as a side note, we learned that uh, even our trials uh, are a way to uh, actually experience this gift of faith, that, that our faith is proven through the trials. Don't underestimate the value of a trial. Don't underestimate the value of a, of a trial. Some of you may, may be going through trials even right now, but that f- trial can be used to display your faith, that your faith would be proven during that trial. So just as a side note, keep persevering. But what we have here is uh, the Lord indicating that faith is precious, that it's something that I will honor. On the last day, when it's revealed that you've persevered, I will honor that faith. It's the same word that's used for a wife, to honor your wife. Down in chapter 2 and verse 7, Peter uses the same word again, uh, where he's In this context, speaking about the the privilege of being built on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, and having the honor of offering up spiritual sacrifices 
that are acceptable to God. That's the context here. And then in verse 7, it says, this precious value then is for you who believe. Only those who believe are built on the cornerstone and can offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. And this precious value then is for you who believe. That's for you. You have the privilege of being built on the cornerstone. And it's an honor for you to be on that cornerstone. There's a value that's assigned to that. It's a gift. It's a gift with a great price. Same word, uh, Tame, is used to speak about positions of authority, positions that you grant authority to, that I'm, 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 I'm giving authority to this position. I'm recognizing the authority of this position. It was used to speak of the honor that belonged to masters, to priests, to prophets, to kings, to elders, even to God himself as a God who is worthy of honor, value, you esteem him highly. And then Peter says, in the same way that you understand what honor means in these other contexts, I'm telling you that I want you to honor your wife. I want you to highly esteem your wife. I want you to understand the significance of your wife. Not significant in this context because usually when we speak about honor, it's honoring somebody who's in authority over us. You know, that's, that's how it's commonly used. So, so here you have something that's turned around. You know, you would expect it to say, you know, and, and, and wives, you know, honor your husbands or respect your husbands. You know, that's the natural way that you would expect it. You know, Ephesians chapter 5, we read it earlier uh, today where it says that the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And all the men say, Amen. That's right, you know, respect the, the husband. But Peter turns it around and says, you respect your wife. <laughs> you give honor to your wife. You show her honor. Showing honor literally means to assign honor to her. It's the only time this word shows up in the, the New Testament here. Uh, the word for showing, it's a, it's a word that means to assign, to distribute, to portion off honor, to give them their just due. It was used in, in a, a military context for somebody giving somebody their due what they're due for, you know, a service. You know, this is what you're due for your service. And it says that we're to assign, ascribe honor to our wives. They're to be treated with respect. So what does that mean? That means that they're not your slaves. They're not your maids. They're not your doormats. They're not your punching bags. You don't speak to them in a way that belittles them, that belittles their contributions, even though they may not be an authority within your home, you are to speak to them as you already know how to speak to other people who are in authority. That's, uh, that's the context here, to ascribe honor to them. No, they're not the authority, but I'm speaking to them with respect. The same kind of way that I would respect somebody who is an authority, I'm going to respect my wife as well. Even though she's not the authority, I still respect her. That's the significance in this context. Treat her with Honor. We're to honor our women. And the Bible is remarkable in the way that it shows honor to women. It's been observed that we know more specific good things about the women of the Bible than about any other women in ancient history. That the Bible is constantly speaking about the honor that's deserving of women. The New Testament opens up with a, a genealogy and includes four women, even though genealogies never included women. Women like Mary and Martha were present for the teaching of, of Jesus. That was an honorable position. Women supported Jesus and the apostles for their ministry. The first witnesses of the resurrection were, guess who? Women. They showed up first. They're actually the last ones there to follow Jesus all the way to the tomb. And the first ones who showed up, you know, to anoint him for his burial. Women were devoting themselves to prayer in the upper room and received the Spirit just like the rest of the disciples. 
And women like Lydia became the first converts. There's, there's these women that are honored. Women like Sarah, commended for their faith. Ruth for her commitment. Esther for her courage. Mary for her submission and loyalty. Anna for her devotion. Lois and Eunice for their faithful parenting and training. Women were being honored. And then you have in uh, Proverbs 31, which the whole of Proverbs, much of the Proverbs personifies lady wisdom, but in Proverbs 31, it specifically gives honor to the excellent wife whose worth is far above rubies. Rubies were, were rare in the ancient days and the most valued gem and hard to find. So when you wanted to display your wealth, if you had a ruby, you'd bring it out. <laughs> you know, this, this is honor, this is value, this is treasured. And Proverbs 31 says that a woman, an excellent wife, her worth is far above rubies, far above rubies. It says in verse 28, her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. And the question is, does praise for your wife characterize your home? Does your spouse feel honored? I'm not asking you what you think, because you might think everything's fine. I'm asking you what does she think? (laughs) Does she think that she's being honored? Is it communicated in your, your words to her? You know, they need to hear that more than, you know, two to three times a year. You know, uh, birthday, Mother's Day, anniversary. You know, hey, honey, I, I just want to let you know I appreciate you today. You know, what about the other 362, right? <laughs> Do the children bless her? Do the children rise up and bless her? Are they allow, allowed to, to get by with too much? I think we all could use some conviction on that, right? Do we allow the kids to get away with too much? How do you speak about your wife when you're in the company of others? You know, Proverbs 31.30 says, uh, a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. You know, when you speak about your wife, is it, you know, man, this is the woman that God gave me. Or, yeah, this is the woman that God gave me. <laughs> like, what's, what's the way that you speak about your wife to, to others? And is honor communicated in your actions towards her? Proverbs 31, 31 says, give her the product of her hands. Tangible expressions of love is another way to show honor. Or if your wife is like mine, washing the dishes. <laughs> what are the ways that you show honor? You know, hey, I'm going to try to show, show honor. Try to let you know that I appreciate you. You know, these are the things that scripture calls us to do or to show honor. Number two, appreciating her inheritance. So we're, number one, we're assigning her significance and we're appreciating her inheritance. And this is, this is fantastic. Look back again at chapter three and verse, verse seven again. It says uh, that we are to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. This is fascinating because biblically and historically, the inheritance of a father was passed down through his firstborn son. That's how an inheritance was passed down. Firstborn child was the one who received the birthright. We see an example of that over in Genesis chapter 25 where Isaac had two sons and the birthright legally belonged to Esau. And in Genesis 25, if you remember the story, Esau despised his birthright for a pot of stew. You know, so, uh, you know, go ahead, Jacob, you keep that birthright. What does that mean to me? Just give me some of that red stuff over there. You know, which is why his name was also called Edom, you know, for the red stuff. Give me some of the red stuff. You know, he he despised the birthright for a pot of stew. 
and the firstborn son had the right of the inheritance. It was passed down to the firstborn son, and Esau despised it. Jacob obtained it. Just last week, we saw in Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus was rudely interrupted in the middle of his teaching because there was this one man saying, ooh, 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 teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. You know, let's get to the really important stuff. What about dividing up the inheritance? Uh, what was the, the, the issue there? The older brother had the rights of the inheritance, and he was now responsible to share it out with the other brothers within the family. And then basically this younger brother is saying he's not, he's not giving up the goods soon enough. You know, tell him to divide it up. But the firstborn son had the right of the inheritance. This inheritance was not passed down through the daughters. Daughters were provided for by their fathers, by their husbands, by their sons. They didn't receive the inheritance directly. It was received through a a mediator, through a husband, through a father, through a son. If you remember when we walked through the the book of Ruth, uh, one of the key aspects of that uh, book uh, was that Ruth, uh, even though she was a daughter of Naomi, she needed a male heir in order to obtain the inheritance. And Naomi needed a male descendant in order to be secure as well. There was, there was a need for male inheritance, a kinsman redeemer. Who's going to redeem the land that belongs to my husband or my sons? And this is one of the reasons why producing a male offspring became so important. I actually remember uh, when my first two kids were born, uh, uh, they were uh, born at the uh, Washington uh, Medical Center in the uh, uh, Washington Hospital Center in uh, uh, D.C., and they actually had a, um, a policy that they wouldn't allow the husband to be in the room when they revealed the gender to the wife of, you know, the, the baby. They didn't want to reveal what the, the gender was of the babies. And the reason why is because they had an experience where some Middle Eastern men became so frustrated that their wife was producing another daughter instead of a son that they would literally beat their wives in the hospital. In the office, you know, they find out, hey, it's, it's a girl, and this man would beat his wife. So they said, hey, we're not going to do, you know, we're not going to tell what the gender is while the husband's here anymore. Like they had a policy that they made at that time. I'm not sure if it's still in place, but they had a policy that were, hey, we're not going to reveal the gender while the husband's here because they had experienced some abuse right there in the doctor's office. Well, what does First Peter teach us? It might be that in society that the, the rights of the inheritance did not come down to the, to the females. It didn't come to the, to the daughters. But I'm telling you that in God's economy here, what we're talking about here, disgrace of life, that the woman is a fellow heir. Fellow heir. She inherits everything that the male inherits. That's, that's the point here. And and daughters never knew of this kind of privilege. They never saw an inheritance unless it was connected to a male. But here the inheritance is passed directly down to them. Her inheritance is not dependent on him. What does she inherit? She inherits the grace of life. And there's a few different ways to understand this. It could be the grace which gives life or the grace which is life. Some commentators would understand the phrase to mean that life itself is the grace or even that marriage might be the, the grace, but the majority would understand this phrase to be referring to the grace of salvation, which gives life. Grace gives life, which is how grace has already been used in First Peter, back in chapter 1 and verse 10. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. 
Chapter 1, verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace. Again, this salvation, the, the inheritance, the promises that are going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's grace which brings life. And that life that we inherit is eternal. It, it, it encompasses all that we gain in eternity. If you look back to, to chapter 1 in uh, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 3. Look what he says here. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse four, to obtain an inheritance. Those of us who've received grace also receive an inheritance. So what is this grace of life? It's the inheritance that comes to the believer by grace through faith because of Christ. We have eternal life right now as a present possession, but the fullness of that inheritance will be realized in the future, and that inheritance is reserved for you. And as children of God, both men and women, we have a portion of the inheritance which belongs to Christ, and that portion has been set aside for us. Set aside because we're children of God. And what does Christ inherit? Psalm 2 says he inherits the very ends of the earth. Hebrews chapter 1, he said, it says that he's the heir of all things. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it speaks about us being heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. This is the inheritance that you will be a partaker of. I mean, can you even begin to imagine this? <laughs> that, that we are in those who are heirs of the kingdom to come, the kingdom that was promised to the disciples where they would rule and reign, that that also belongs to us. And women of faith will not have to wait for their husband to show up. <laughs> They're not gonna have to wait for some, some son to get in line before they receive the inheritance. Women of faith will not have to wait for anything because they are joint heirs. And this makes perfect sense out of another text that I want you to turn to. Galatians chapter 3, another text that's often uh, misused. I'll start at verse 23. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 23. It says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, man nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, how many times have you, used, have you heard of Galatians chapter 3 uh, to defend women preachers or women pastors? Ask yourself a question. Where did pastor show up in Galatians chapter 3? It's not there. It's not there. What, what are we talking about? Again, verse 24. We are all justified by faith. Verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27. You were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. What does that mean? 
Does that mean that there are no longer any differences between Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female? The answer is no. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's saying. Obviously, there are differences or else Peter wouldn't be talking about differences, right? Because he's addressing wives differently than he addresses husbands. He addresses the slaves differently than he addresses the masters, right? There's differences here. Different roles, different relationships. So where is there no difference? All you need to do is, again, look at the text. We're all equally justified by faith. We all have justification. We're all equally sons of God by faith, adoption. We're all equally baptized and clothed with Christ, our union with Christ. And we all have equal access to the inheritance. Look again at verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. What does that say? Women have equal access to the inheritance. That means that your wife can have a greater inheritance or portion of the inheritance than you do in eternity. (laughs) Because she's an equal heir. She's an equal heir. It, it, It also means that if a wife is a believer and a husband is not, that she can receive the reward without him. And what that means for men is that they should have a greater respect for their wives and for women. Why? Because one day you'll be looking up to her. <laughs> Maybe, possibly, right? That if, if she has been faithful to Christ, and if she has de- de- determined and has uh, uh, set herself to, to focus on serving him and suffering for him, that she will receive the reward for that. And that has nothing to do with you. So it's not like, well, you know, I've, I've been an authority here and I'll be an authority in, in heaven as well. That's not what the text says. The text says that the woman is in joint heir with the man. She receives an inheritance just like the male receives an inheritance. It's not dependent on the man. Women have equal access to that inheritance, which also means that depending on your, your gifts, some people say, well, you know, if I, if I don't have this position now, you know, if, if I'm not allowed to, you know, be in this role and function in this role now, uh, that that means that, you know, somehow I'm a second-class citizen, you know, that somehow God's looking at me differently, you know, because, you know, that role is reserved for a guy and that role is reserved for, for that guy and, you know, I have this gift. And if you're looking at it in that way, you're looking at it wrong because, because somehow you're connecting what's happening now to what's happening in the future. And it's about your faithfulness now. It's about your faithfulness now. And women are joint heirs, equal heirs with men. That's what the scripture's saying. Number three, this is the last section here, back in the first Peter chapter three. It says, honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. How important is it that we view our women in this way? It's as important as your connection with God is. Acknowledge her importance. It's a biblical principle that if we stubbornly refuse to hear from God, that God will refuse to hear from us. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. Matthew chapter 5. There was only one place, one acceptable place by the time of uh, David to offer up sacrifice, and that was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was uh, located about 60 miles away from Galilee where Jesus was speaking in Matthew chapter 5 as he's given the Sermon on the Mount. And in Jesus' day, there was this massive temple at Jerusalem. And it was a place where worshipers would go three times a year. And uh, once you entered the Temple Mount, 
you'd pass through the court of the Gentiles, you'd pass through the outer court, pass through the boundaries, and if you got there, that was as close as you could get as a Gentile. But if you were a Jewish person, there'd be another boundary that you'd go, go through, and there was a court of the women, a court of the men, and then you'd finally get up to where the priest would be offering sacrifice beyond another barrier, and you'd offer your sacrifice there. That's, that's what would happen. There was a lot of work that went into this. Picking the right sacrifice, you know, working your way through the crowds, getting past all these barriers, and you finally get up to offer this sacrifice. After all this work and trouble, you finally get up to offer the sacrifice. And then Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your gift, your offering at the altar, here you are, you, you are in the act of presenting your offering at the altar. You're handing it off to the priest so that he can slaughter this animal. And there remember that your brother has something against you. You've made your way all the way there. And now you remember, yeah, it's bothering my conscience right now. Like there was something that we had this argument. We never made that right. But I'm here presenting my offering. I've, I've taken a lot of trouble to get here. What does Jesus say to do? Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. But, but Jesus, I, my home is 60 miles away. I'm from Galilee. <laughs> like, like, you really expect me to like just drop everything and, and go back to Galilee and, and to make things right? Yep, yep. Drop everything, go back, make things right, and then come and appear before me. There's this principle of unless you're, you're willing to, to listen to me and the, the way that I'm telling you to treat one another, unless you're ready to listen to me, I'm not ready to listen to what you have to say. Jesus here reveals this, this principle that it's, it's really a common throughout Scripture that unless we're willing to listen to God, he's not ready to listen to us. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Proverbs 28, verse 9, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination And we also have another verse in Psalm 34, verse 15 and 16, which says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry, but the face of the Lord is against evildoers. The Bible lets us know that if you're unwilling to listen to the Lord, and if you're at odds with your wife, you're you're living in an unreconciled relationship with your spouse. Now, you know, the Scripture lets us know that as much as lies within us, you know, that we're to be at peace you know, with all men, you know, doing all that we can do to be at peace, you know, and sometimes you can't be at peace even when you're wanting to be at peace, but you're doing all that you can to reconcile and not just letting it go. Ah, uh, it's, it's not a big deal. I've got more important stuff to do. Like, I'm, I'm here to worship. You know, isn't worship more important than uh, getting this right? No, it's because worship is so important that you got to get it right. You understand that? It's not that, oh, you know, my, my worship is more important than reconciling with my spouse. It's because worship is so important that you have to first reconcile with your spouse. Because your worship is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. And God is saying, I'm not listening to your prayers. You want to come and talk to me and you haven't made it right with your spouse? Don't come. Go get it right with your spouse first. And this is one of the ways that we show honor to our spouses. How do we honor our spouses? We assign our spouses significance. We appreciate their inheritance, understand that they're joint heirs. We also acknowledge 
their importance even as it relates to our worship and prayers that are offered to God. And these are some of the ways that we honor our spouses. And one particular way uh, that was often recognized in the ancient world of uh, showing honor was our dedication to our spouse. And just real quickly as, a, as an illustration, last week our church had the, the privilege of uh, being part of Janice Lee's memorial service and homegoing. And uh, just publicly want to say that I, I, I praise God for, for Kevin and uh, for his example of loving his wife. Just such an example uh, to so many of us for over 40 years of marriage. Uh, sadly, we don't have a lot of great examples of men who honor their wives by honoring their vows. <laughs> you know, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. You know, one of the, the common ways that that vow is... Uh, uh, spoken today is, you know, instead of till death do us part, it's an, an, as long as love shall last. As long as love shall last. You know, we can't commit till death do us part. You know, as long as, as, long as love shall last, which is really a, a slick attempt to uh, escape the covenant responsibility of marriage. Because who's responsible to love? You are. <laughs> what do you mean as long as love shall last? As, as, as long as I'm committed to love, love will last, right? Because you are the one who's committed to love. Part of the vow say, to love and to cherish. But now you want to say, well, as long as, as long, love shall last. You know, what's, what's love got to do with it? <laughs> got to do with it, right? <laughs> what are you talking about as long as love shall last? Love is what you have committed to do. And love doesn't last because one spouse or the other is refusing to commit themselves to love. So don't blame love. And we're grateful for those examples that we have of those who are committed to their spouse and to to honor their spouse and even till death to to bring that honor to their spouse even in in their passing away as well. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. And uh, Father, we thank you for the commitment uh, that we've made, that many of us have made to marriage. And I know not everyone here is is married. uh, But Father, we uh, do thank you for those who have committed themselves to marriage, and we pray that as a church that we would encourage those marriages, encourage those relationships. And Father, that we would pray for those relationships, uh, that we would look uh, to and encourage them in, in, uh, in the, the task that they've committed themselves to, the commitment that they've made. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, you would help us as, as husbands particularly, uh, Lord, that we would uh, truly honor and, and value uh, the wives that you've uh, given uh, to us. And Father, that our church would be known as a as a place where, where men honor their wives. Now, Father, where, where men uh, speak in a, in a way that, that shows respect uh, for their wife, that doesn't belittle their wives, belittle their contributions. Now, Father, I pray that uh, the women here would understand that they're joint heirs. Now, Father, that there is a great inheritance that's before them. And uh, for those that, that serve you faithfully and sacrificially, uh, Lord, that they're, they're in no way behind a, a husband or any man, now, Father, that we all have our own race to, to run and uh, that you've called every one of us to be faithful. Uh, so, Father, I pray for, for faithful women here, uh, Lord, and that we would be committed uh, to following after you here at Baltimore Bible Church. And, Father, we pray that of the marriages that we do have here, Lord, that they would last the, and, and, and really uh, uh, beyond the, the, the test of, of time. Uh, Father, that uh, there would be a commitment, uh, Lord, to, uh, uh, to their wives, their spouses, Lord, uh, until, until death. 
uh, Father, that, uh, the, uh, that through, through the, the years, Lord, that uh, that commitment would only be stronger. And Father, we pray that for each one of our marriages here. Uh, Father, may you be glorified and honored in, in this place. Uh, for your glory, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.